First Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can use one of the Bibles in the back of the pews and turn to page 954. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. But again, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, suffering is a major theme in the letter of 1 Peter, and it's central to the passage that we're looking at this morning. And basically from this point to the end of Peter's letter, Peter will be addressing the Christian's response to persecution. You know that the original audience of Peter's day were facing hostility, things such as insults and threats from the unbelievers around them. And the temptation was to withdraw in fear and not live godly lives in the midst of their suffering. And so this morning, we're going to see that the suffering and victory of Jesus helps us respond to our suffering with hope and holiness. Peter's giving practical instruction on how believers respond to undeserved persecution, and he's encouraging them to do good, to persist in doing good. And the motivation that he gives comes from the fact that Christ suffered and then he was vindicated. And we too walk the same path, suffering and then glory. We follow Jesus' example of doing good 
in our suffering, trusting that in the end, we will be vindicated. So the suffering and victory of Jesus helps us respond to our suffering with hope and holiness. All right, let's take a look at verses 13 and 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter asks a rhetorical question here. If you do what is good, will harm come your way? Practically speaking, in our world, if you follow the law, most likely harm won't come your way. There are definitely exceptions to this. But if you do the right thing, then most likely you're not going to get in trouble for it. If you were to ask any person what sort of neighbor they would like, I don't think anybody would respond with murderers, drunkards, or thieves. But rather people of integrity, who are honest and considerate. But Peter is probably saying something else in verse 12, or in reference to verse 12. In verse 12, he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And so he definitely isn't suggesting that all believers escape rejection and harm in this world. Suffering will come to those who follow Jesus. Jesus himself told us this. And we know from this letter that Peter's original audience was facing accusations, insults, and threats. And so most likely what Peter means here is that ultimately no harm could come to believers if they continue to live godly lives because the pain inflicted on them now is only temporary and they will be vindicated on the last day. And so we should be zealous or eager for doing good. But what does doing good look like? Is it picking up trash in your neighborhood? Is it buying the person's coffee behind you at the drive-thru at Starbucks? What does Peter mean by doing good? Well, in the context of this letter, it's the things that he mentioned in the previous verses. Remember, he encouraged us to be like-minded, to be sympathetic, humble, not retaliating back when hurt or insulted, pursuing peace. It's living lives in obedience to God's word. These are things that we should be eager to live out. And in verse 14, Peter clarifies that we will experience suffering. He says that those who endure suffering because of righteousness' sake will be blessed. We can be harmed even for doing good. Living lives in obedience to God may lead to opposition. There are many people in our world that do not like the things that Christians do. They get angry or insulted at us when we refuse to participate in something that the culture accepts, but we know is sinful. Our values are sometimes countercultural. Christians will experience suffering if they are doing good and following Jesus. But Peter says that those who experience suffering for living holy lives, for doing good, are blessed. They're blessed. 
And he's probably remembering when he saw Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. And we have written record of this in Matthew 5.10. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This present suffering that we face in this world is not a sign of punishment, but a sign of God's blessing now and in the future when we will inherit eternal life. What an encouragement to Christians who are facing suffering for doing good. We are blessed in this life, but we'll be blessed with eternal life in the end. And then Peter clarifies in the, in the next verses how a Christian should act in the face of persecution. Believers don't simply endure persecution. We should see this as an opportunity to witness. Peter teaches us three things. He teaches us that believers should not fear those who come against them. Believers should not fear those who come against them. Believers should be prepared to share the gospel. And the third thing, that our words and actions matter when sharing the gospel. Take a look at verses 14, and six, 14 through 16. Fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Believers should not fear those who come against them. Our problem is that we have little to no fear of God. And we have great fear of men. We fear humiliation. We fear what people will do to us if they disagree with what we believe. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter is encouraging us to not fear men or our circumstances, but to fear God. And so he tells us to honor Christ as holy in our hearts. The heart is the origin of human behavior. What flows from the heart is what we're going to do, our actions. Whatever is in there is how we're going to live. And Peter saying that when you honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. It's not this inner private thing. It's not this you and Jesus thing that you do out you know, in the corner or in your prayer closet. But it's something that's displayed to all. It's how you live your life. It's acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ and honoring his name. That's how we honor Christ as holy in our hearts. And Peter, the guy who's writing this, had some practical experience in this area. When Jesus told him to walk on the water, he was able to do it. 
when he kept his focus on Jesus, when he recognized that Jesus was the Lord over the wind and the waves. But the second he took his eyes off of Jesus and fear swept over him because of the wind and the waves, he began to sink. We must keep our eyes on Christ. When we honor Christ in our hearts, the fear of our circumstances and the people that come against us will disappear. Believers should not fear those who come against them. And next, Peter talks about being prepared to share the gospel to them. He says, to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope, for the hope that is in you. Our good behavior in the midst of our suffering causes people to ask us about the hope that we have. Maybe some of you here truly desire to share Christ with those around you. Maybe start off with living godly lives. People will notice that. They may not like it, but they'll be interested in the fact that you have such resolve to live for the Lord. And as they see you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, as they see your desire to bless those who come against you, as they see your pursuit of peace, those who come against you or maybe onlookers will ask you, why are you that way? Why didn't you stand up for yourself and defend the things that were said about you? How could you show such respect and love to that person that hurt you so much? How are you able to have such hope in the midst of your suffering? And we have the opportunity to share about the hope that is in us. The theme of hope was introduced in the first chapter of 1 Peter, where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the hope that we have, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's a hope rooted in the past, a hope that continues in the present, and a hope that will be completed in the future. This hope in Jesus enables us to endure suffering and causes those around us to ask about it. And so Peter says that we must be prepared. Are you prepared? Every Christian should be able to share the gospel when people ask them about the hope that they have. Are you prepared? Believers should not fear those who come against them. They should be prepared to share the hope that is in them. And Peter also says that our words and actions matter when sharing the gospel. The way in which we share the hope that we have is very important. In the context of suffering and persecution, our responses could be very poor. We might respond in bitterness. We could be tempted to respond in a harsh way because the people that are treating us 
are treating us in a harsh way. But instead of allowing fear to drive us and to use the same tactics of our enemies, Peter says that we must share this hope with gentleness and respect. We are to treat our enemies with dignity and not lash out at them. This is important. Ready? We often make the mistake of seeing these opportunities as a way to win an argument. So win the argument with the person that's coming after us and asking us all these questions about the Christian faith and we lose sight of the fact that we are meant to win the lost to Christ. One evidence that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives is our willingness and readiness to witness to others about him. But gentle and respectful words will not honor the Lord if they're not supported by a consistent life. Peter says that we are to maintain a good conscience. And so we must deal with the sin in our own lives and maintain communion with our God through the word, through prayer. Then our behavior and our words will speak volumes to those who come against us. And if people take offense, it should be with the content of the gospel, not the manner in which we shared it. It should be with the content of the gospel. Peter shares the promise that God will vindicate us. Those who slander us for following the Lord will in the end be put to shame. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Only fear God who will make everything right in the end. And then Peter summarizes what he's already said in in verse 17. He writes, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. No Christian should suffer for doing evil. And no Christian should be surprised if he or she suffers for doing good. Suffering for doing good may be God's will for your life. And then there's this notable shift in Peter's writing in verses 18 through 22. He presents Christ as our example and our hope. These verses depict the gospel beautifully, and yet verses 19 and 20 are very difficult to understand. We have this amazing summary of the doctrine of Christ in these verses. We see the death of Christ. We see the resurrection of Christ. We see the ascension of Christ. And Peter reminds us, through mentioning all of these things, the suffering and the victory of Jesus. We've talked about this before in chapter 1, but one of the main themes in the letter of 1 Peter and the main themes of the entire Bible is suffering and then glory. This was the path of Jesus, and this is the path that his followers travel as well. The call to do good while enduring suffering becomes very clear when we focus in on the death and the resurrection of our Savior. 
And Peter presents that he has victory over sin. He has victory over death. And he has victory over evil. We see Christ's victory over sin in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Peter writes that Christ suffered once for sins. Jesus didn't avoid suffering. He accomplished the mission that he was sent to accomplish. In the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says that Christ's mission was to save his people from their sins. And that mission meant suffering and death. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Jesus suffered. He was betrayed by Judas. He was abandoned by his disciples. He was unjustly put on trial. He was beaten and then crucified on a Roman cross. And then the greatest suffering he experienced was when he took the wrath of God upon himself. Jesus suffered. And his death was a once for all sacrifice for our sins in order to reconcile us back to God. Peter here teaches us the meaning of the death of Christ. Christ's death was for sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. And in our sin, in our unrighteousness, this has separated us from God. But Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He was tempted and yet never sinned. And so Jesus, the righteous one, died on behalf of us, the unrighteous. This is where we get the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus died as our substitute. Jesus died for us. Jesus died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. Isaiah 53, that I believe that Pastor Scott's going to read later on, says that he was pierced for our transgressions. And so the death of Jesus provides forgiveness for sins. And this death for sins was once for all. There's no longer the need for continual sacrifices for sins like we see in the Old Testament. His death was sufficient. His death fully met the demands that the justice of God requires for sins. Jesus died for our sins. And Jesus died so that he might bring us to God. Because our sins have separated us from God, we are made to think that he doesn't exist or that it isn't important to have a relationship with him. And if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, I want you to know that we all long for you to know God. And here's the good news. You don't have to be a good person to come to God. Jesus was the good person, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. And he died on the cross for the sins of those who believe in him. And so if you turn from your sins 
and you trust in Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. Jesus brings us to God. Believe in him. And then for the Christians in the room, some of us ask the question, when we mess up big time or when we sin, how could God really love me? How can I face God now that I've committed this great sin? Well, this passage reminds us that we didn't bring ourselves to God. Jesus did. You have complete forgiveness in Jesus. Complete forgiveness in Jesus. And so repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus. And in light of what he's done for you, live a godly life. Because of Jesus, we have full access to God. We can come boldly to his throne of grace. And so in the death of Jesus, we see that it's better to suffer for doing good. Our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ and do good is grounded in his willingness to suffer death for our sake. But not only that, Jesus has victory over sin. Persecuted and suffering Christians need to remember both the humiliation, the suffering of Jesus, and the exaltation, the victory of Jesus. He was put to death in the flesh. That's referring to his crucifixion. But then he was made alive in the spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit raising Christ from the dead. Here, Peter is proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. We should be reminded of Christ's victory over death. We're going to celebrate this in, the, in a couple weeks. The gospel message includes resurrection because a dead Savior cannot save. It is the risen Christ who gives us life. And we all face the reality of death. But we don't have to fear death because of the victory that we share in Christ's resurrection. Our death is not the end. Christ's resurrection brings victory after suffering. And this victory is the hope of suffering Christians. And so Jesus has victory over sin. Jesus has victory over death. And now we'll see that Jesus has victory over evil. <laughs> Verses 19 and 20 are really hard to interpret. Spirits in prison who did not obey in the days of Noah? What? What is Peter talking about? These verses are actually some of the most difficult in the New Testament to interpret accurately. There's many different interpretations of this specific text. And the great reformer Martin Luther said this, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. So I can assure you, if Martin Luther doesn't know, this guy doesn't. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what I think it means. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, so I think the spirits in prison refer to fallen angels or demons. And the reason why I think that, I don't want to get into it, but in the New Testament, when you use the word spirit, it's never mentioned to refer to, or it's never referring to a human. It's always referring to a spirit or a fallen angel or a demon. So I believe that the spirits in prison are fallen angels or, or demons, and that these fallen angels or demons are mentioned in Genesis 6-2, where these fallen angels saw human women, they saw that they were beautiful, and then they cohabitated with them. These demons existed during the time of Noah. Genesis 6-2 is right before the, the story of the flood, where Noah built the ark and judged the world through a worldwide flood. And only eight people survived. Everyone else died. And so during this time before the flood, these fallen angels were running riot all throughout the earth, spreading their wicked and vile anti-God activity, including sexual sin. And so at some point, they were put in an eternal chains or prison. And where I get that is from Jude 6. It's, in Jude 6, it says, These angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So the way that I interpret these verses in 1 Peter is that Jesus, after his death, and either before or after he was raised, his resurrection, he went and proclaimed to these fallen angels of his resurrection, of his victory and their doom. Jesus has victory over evil. And so this has application to what Peter's been talking about. Not only are believers faced with opposition from people, but they face opposition from spiritual forces. And Jesus has victory over them. He proclaims his victory to the spirits in prison. Jesus has victory over sin. Jesus has victory over death. And Jesus has victory over evil. And as Peter mentions the time of Noah, he gives this important side note about baptism. And as Baptists, we should be excited the fact that baptism is mentioned in the scripture this morning, right? Amen? But this text is a little tricky. Take a look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The flood of Noah's day was God's judgment for sin. And so think about this. At that time, wicked people were judged by going down into the water, right? They were drowned. They never came back up. Only a few people were saved and brought up through the water, safe in the ark. And so in baptism, we are symbolically saved from that waters of judgment and raised to new life because Christ went down and was raised. 
That's what Peter's mentioning here. So when Peter says that baptism saves us, he doesn't mean that baptism is required for salvation, but that it's a sign of our faith in the one who saves us, Jesus. Baptism happens after someone becomes a Christian. It's an act of obedience that Jesus commands that those who follow him are to be baptized. And so baptism is a sign of an inward reality. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's why Peter gives that qualification. It's not the removal of dirt that saves you, but it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But our faith is expressed in baptism. We make an appeal to God. When we are baptized, we pledge our allegiance to Jesus. We pledge to live in relationship with him, which results in a good conscience before him. And so Peter is using this moment to remind these believers of the pledge that they had made. As they face suffering because of Christ and the many temptations that were tempting them to turn away, he's urging them to live, even under persecution, in a way that honors their baptism. Our baptism reminds us of our salvation, the union that we have with Jesus in his death and resurrection. So my question to you is, have you ever thought about how important it is to remember your baptism, especially in the moments that are very real and life-pressing? Peter did. He was reminding these believers of their baptism. Maybe we should do the same. When friends of ours are going through a great deal of suffering, remind them of their baptism. When you are going through a great deal of suffering, remember your baptism. And lastly, Peter mentions the ascension of Jesus. In verse 22, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. After his resurrection, Jesus spent time with his disciples and with those who followed him. But then he ascended into heaven and he was given a place of honor and authority. All powers are now subjected to Jesus. On earth, Jesus lived a life of suffering, a life of humility. But now he reigns in heaven in victory. He is now reigning and ruling over everything and one day will come back for his people. That's the promise we have. Jesus has victory over sin. Jesus has victory over death. Jesus has victory over evil and everything is subject to him. The victory of Jesus gives us, gives believers hope. And as Christians, we share in this victory. We have nothing to fear. And so Peter is telling these elect, isles, elect exiles that Christ has died for your sins, that he has broken the dominion of death, that he has authority over the spiritual powers of darkness, and he reigns and rules over all. And so in light of all of this, it's better to suffer for doing good. Knowing, yes, we will suffer, but we will be vindicated in the end, suffering and then glory. 
And so it's better to have integrity at work, even if it costs you a promotion or the loss of your job. It's better to speak truth to a friend, even if that means that you're going to have an uncomfortable conversation or maybe lose that relationship. It's better to pursue holiness, even if that means that we don't participate in the things that our friends do. It's better to sacrificially love those around us, even when we're not going to receive that in return. It's better to boldly proclaim the gospel, knowing that we may experience hostility and persecution. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then nothing can destroy you. The guilt of our sins has been dealt with. The power of sin and death is broken. It's broken by the living Christ. The powers of darkness are overcome in the name of Jesus. We have nothing to fear. And so Christ, who is your example and your hope, who suffered and then was vindicated, should be your motivation for living godly lives, even in the midst of suffering. Be eager to do good. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. We have victory in Jesus. We don't need to fear the threat of persecution. We don't need to fear the fury of Satan because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to encourage you just a little bit more from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Calvary, this is our hope. The suffering and victory of Jesus helps us respond to our suffering with hope and holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word and the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus suffered, died, rose, and ascended into heaven and is now ruling and reigning over all things. He is victory over sin, death, and evil. And we share in that victory. We truly have nothing to fear. Help us to follow Jesus in our suffering by doing good, knowing that one day we will be vindicated. Help us to be prepared to share the hope 
that is in us. Let us not have poor attitudes, but a desire for the salvation of those who ask us about our hope. We pray that you would forgive those who do oppose us. And forgive us for caving into our fear of men and not honoring Christ in our hearts. May we live in a way that honors our baptism. Make us living pictures of your mercy and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.